In a September 2013 By the Book interview with the New York Times, Jhumpa Lahiri was asked a series of superficial questions, the kind of queries designed to reduce the important subjects of our age to middling pablum for middle-brow readers too terrified of challenge or confrontation. One of the questions was, what immigrant fiction has been the most important to you, both personally and as an inspiration for your own writing? Lahiri resisted the label, immigrant fiction, pointing out that all American fiction could be classified as immigrant fiction. And she asked right back, if certain books are to be termed immigrant fiction, what do we call the rest? Native fiction? Puritan fiction? As someone who has always read widely, these labels trouble me. I mean, don't we read books to find perspectives that differ from our own? To know voices and minds we might not know in the real? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm all for escapism and entertainment. But if some white middle-class reader in Brooklyn commits herself repeatedly to yet another safe and inoffensive book about white middle-class people in Brooklyn that offers no distinction from any of the other previous books about white middle-class people in Brooklyn that she has read, well, what in the hell is the point of reading literature? I, I guess I'm fired up about the subject because I look to what Dina Mengesto has done in his three novels, and categorizing his work merely as immigrant fiction strikes me as terribly lazy and terribly reductionist, especially when he's gone out of his way to depict class division and ethnic division in ways that are just as much a part of our world as some anglophonic narrative about, you guessed it, white middle-class people in Brooklyn. Fortunately, Dino and I unpacked these issues at length when he very kindly agreed to talk with me, just as his third novel, All Our Names, had been published. Okay, so I am here with Dino Mengestu, who is most recently the author of All Our Names. Dino, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ed. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so let's go ahead and get right into it. This novel uh, actually does something new that we haven't actually seen from you. I mean, it's the first of your novels to feature the first-person perspective from a woman, one of two alternating perspectives in this book. The other is a man named Isaac, or uh, I'm going to use the term not Isaac, just yes. to because <laughs> there is an Isaac and a not Isaac. Yeah. Uh, and it's also the first to really depict this Napoleon tableau of what seems at first to be an unnamed African country in revolutionary turmoil, uh, almost a response to the illusion you made to abandon the river in the first book, The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears, uh, and also the lies that Jonas is spinning in How to Read the Air. So I'm wondering, you know, why it took you three novels before you could write partially from the perspective of a woman and also from this position of revolutionary turmoil. I mean, I'm curious how the first two novels led you to this particular point, because I, I, I read all three of your novels and I just thought it was a fascinating evolution. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that was almost perfect. Um, one of the best readings I've ever had of, of all three books. Um, they are very, very closely intertwined. And if anything, even though this is the last book of the three to have been written, in some ways it sort of actually precedes the other two. This was the book that, you know, actually um, precedes the revolutions that make the characters in the first novel and in the second novel flee. And so I wanted to kind of go back to what I thought would be um, an earlier moment in history, a point that would say like, this is actually um, that very elusive, optimistic period just after independence when things still seemed like, you know, they might turn out great in many African nations, and then they didn't. 
And the other thing was after writing the first two novels, I realized um, there's another part of me that had never really had a chance to that I'd never really had a chance to explore in fiction, which was to write from the point of view of, of an American, because yeah. I'm also I think deeply American, and I grew up in the Midwest um, after leaving Ethiopia, and so Helen's voice I think is partly very much a product of that. So if my novels have oftentimes been categorized in terms of immigrant fiction, um, to some degree this is also perhaps a subconscious response to that idea to say, well, look, it's not those categories are very limited um, and don't actually say that much. And in fact, here's a way of seeing that narratives such as this are are more than just immigrant fictions and that immigrant narratives are very much a part of an American tableau and you can't micromanage them or faction them off into ethnic or um, political categories like that. And so Helen's voice, I think, is my response to that. She is an American woman. Um, She is in many ways more intimate to me than the characters of Isaac are. Yeah. So, Helen, it's interesting that it takes a woman for you to say, I'm an American, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, was it easy? Because I, I found her to be, especially, she's a young American. She's still trying to figure out uh, how people work and how relationships work and how one's place is in the universe. And and uh, and I'm wondering, you know, why uh, a, a woman's voice was the best way for you to really uh, show to yourself and show to the world that you were, in fact, as well, an American as well. <laughs> You know, it was definitely because I wanted Isaac to have a relationship with someone. So, I mean, the novel yeah. in my when it first began, it began. I never knew that it would necessarily have a part in in the United States when I first started writing it. I was very much concerned about trying to capture this period in Africa's history. I I thought it would be about a group of friends in um, post colonial Africa on a college campus. And then, as those voices started to converge around um, the characters uh, Isaac and not Isaac, um, I began to realize, well, of course, inevitably there was going to be a second half that took place in America and. Inevitably, you're drawn to the most complex relationships and, um, you know, the relationship between a couple that's almost always the most complex. You know, friends are, of course, complex, but I wanted a love story um, as well in this story. And, um, of course, if we have Isaac, then I had created Helen, followed almost immediately afterwards. And in some ways, you know, I'm not um, – I never even really th- – had a had any anxiety about her gender in some ways she you know emerged into the story as quickly as the uh, the voice of Isaac did and so as soon as I had Isaac coming into America I realized Helen was the one to witness him first she was the first person to see him um, you know sort of enter this landscape and and to acknowledge him and to become close to him and to kind of help create a sense of home for him um, so yeah she just was immediate and necessary and just to delineate to our listeners who are probably listening to this turmoil and <laughs> wondering yeah. what's going on. Um, there is an Isaac that is in the Helen chapters, and there is a Isaac and what we're calling a not-Isaac, a guy who goes by several names, ranging from the professor to yeah. a number of other noms uh, in, in the in the other thing, and it's an alternating series of chapters. I, I wanted to go back to the first question and about looking straight into the face of revolutionary turmoil, which this book seems to me the one that's the clearest. It's yeah. not doing th- so through any kind of lying. It's not doing so through any kind of uh, anecdotal family mm-hmm. uh, episode or anything like that. Uh, it's it's trying to stare in the face at the same time, uh, doing so where the names themselves are not uh, not explicit. They're more common now than proper now. And, I, and I'm wondering um, why it took you three novels yeah. just to really look at that and to face and just confront it like that. 
I think some of it was was gaining more experience as a journalist. So you know, um, journalism helped. It, it really did, and and I never actually thought that. It, oh, I never thought of myself as as having that much of a dialogue between what I do as a journalist and what I do as a novelist. So you know, my first novel touches briefly on the revolutionary politics of Ethiopia, but never having experienced those politics, I had to you know imagine a character who had experienced them at a very young age and then left the country. Um, and my second novel, the characters are basically inventing those stories of revolutionary Africa because they were born in uh, born in America. Um, now, you know, having traveled through Darfur and Eastern Congo and Northern Uganda um, and having actually sort of met revolutionary leaders and having actually sort of seen firsthand the effects of, of these small-scale and sometimes very large-scale conflicts, they all left um, a sort of deep, profound impression on my mind. And some of those impressions worked their way into the second novel, but I don't think I'd had enough time to really um, sit with those images for a while to really kind of let them become a part of my imagination. So by the time this novel began, I, I knew that I, um, I knew the terrain intimately. I knew the consequences of those conflicts. And perhaps more importantly, I felt like I knew how to, um, how to create characters who could be responsible for violence, but were not strictly um, evil men. You know, that to me seemed really important. I've, I've met a lot of men who, who I knew were perpetrators of violence, but at the same time, you realize that to, to describe them or to limit their characters to only horrific terms um, denies their complexity. And so I, th- I felt, I think, finally mature enough and able enough to create characters who were responsible for violence, who witness violence, who are perpetrators of violence, um, and yet at the same time are more than just violent men. Yeah. Do you find, though, that having confronted so many Revolution and revolutions and so many so much violence in, in your journalism that fiction is somehow cheapened that anything that you can contribute uh, from the vantage point of, of the American vantage point is somehow uh, I guess uh, uh, sanded down I mean because because you do have a, a great subtlety with with much of the prose uh, which is not to say yeah. that there is there are things exploding not necessarily politically but also per- personally I, you know I, how do you how do you reckon with the intensity of something like that? Or do you feel that fiction naturally uh, needs to be a little softer in the presentation of these human nuances? I think, you know, I, I, I actually kind of feel like fiction does a better job for me. Um, you know, I think what you can do as a journalist in a very limited space and time that you have to write one story is you can um, – you can sort of tally up the consequences in a very sort of linear uh, fashion. But I think in order to have readers actually experience those, um, that level of violence on, on a scale that doesn't feel purely remote from them, I think that's one of the things that fiction can do. And in writing this novel and having these oscillating chapters between Helen's voice and Isaac's voice, um, part of the intent was definitely to see what happens when you pre- place these two narratives next to each other side by side. If it isn't possible to see them as not wholly distinct stories or wholly distinct experiences, but actually narratives that are are in constant collusion and in constant discourse so that the experiences of someone in Africa don't necessarily seem that remote from the experiences of a white woman in middle America. Um, And that, in fact, these characters, um, especially when you reduce it down to the scale of the individual characters, you know, so Isaac becomes the embodiment to some degree of that violence and he takes that violence and brings it to America and it's relived, reimagined when it's sort of passed on to Helen. And it seems to be fiction is is the space that allows us to do that. Um, you know, when imagining these characters, I th- I thought I could actually get into them, into their lives in ways that I never could when I was writing journalism. I could, you know, imagine the men that I'd met in greater detail and give them, I think, a greater level of emotions than they would ever have given me as a journalist. Mm-hmm. So you just you're describing this collusion between the personal and the political in the alternating yeah. chapters. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, how you 
manage to get that balance. I mean, it seems to me that perhaps at some point you'd have to, I guess, bifurcate yourself. And certainly in the case of Isaac and not Isaac, uh, that's certainly the case. So, I mean, you know, what do you do in in the early stages to to get it so that these two sets of chapters are eventually uh, dancing together and are kind of twisting together? And, you know, How to Read the Air did this quite as well with the alternating uh, two steps. So what of this? I was curious how you get this in any sense of coherence. Um, You know, fortunately, a lot of it happens with – because, you know, you write fairly slowly um, and the echoes end up um, appearing quite naturally. And so the fact that, you know, um, Isaac, when he comes to America, actually is you know his first place that he wants to go to is a college campus, um, and the sort of story that opens up in Africa kind of opens up on a college campus. It was very easy to find those those echoes kind of occur really naturally because you're um, drawing those parallel lines through through these very particular characters, and you know the novel may I hopefully feel expansive in terms of its terrain, but in terms of the individual lives that are form the heart and core of it, there's only really three central characters, and all of those characters were very much in conversation in my imagination. So when one scene or one chapter would end with one particular voice, oftentimes I felt like there was, um, Helen's voice would then maybe follow and I would inadvertently think of what would her response to that situation be. You know, Even though she herself isn't writing from the point of view of someone in Africa, somehow she was responding to that chapter that preceded her in the same way that Isaac was responding to Helen's chapter. Um, so that conversation just happens you know, slowly and, and somewhat organically. Yeah. So the African immigrants in all three of these books, Sefa in The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears, Jonas in How to Read the Air, and the man going by Isaac in the Helen chapters uh, in All Our Names, I mean, they're all muted yeah. in their relationships with women. I mean, Sefa, he can't really act on his feelings for Julia because of the shame he feels in being impoverished. Uh, Jonas would rather sustain this life built on lies, which he's very good at, uh, and because, he'd rather do that than accept this, these amazing gestures from Angela. Uh, and Isaac, he has this difficulty expressing to Helen just what happened in his past. The, the things that, that are curious is that all of these three, even though they're very different, share these kind of passive introverted qualities and they keep cropping up in your leading yeah. men. And, and, <laughs> I, and I, I'm wondering about it. Are you trying to convey something specific about the African immigrant experience? Why is it that uh, these feelings no. are, are so kind of wound up inside these characters? I, I mean, I was, um, I was fascinated. Just like, well, yet again, here, yeah. <laughs> here, here he is. He's, he's kind of uh, wound up a little. Um, yeah, I think that's the effect of trauma on anyone, whether, yeah. it's, whether it doesn't really matter where you come from or um, I think anyone who's ever had a traumatic experience, and, and by and large, everyone has. You know, everyone has lost something or someone very important to them. And when you enter into a relationship with someone, a large part of it is trying to figure out how to share that part of yourself into the part of yourself that you hold on to the longest. It's the part of yourself that um, requires the most complicated vocabulary, and sometimes you don't actually have that vocabulary at your disposal. And so these characters are, you know, when they come and they meet the women in their lives, they are very much damaged men. They are very much victims of, or not just victims, but they are men who have experienced, you know, sort of traumatic upheaval in their lives. And that also, I think, places their the need of their relationships um, to be much greater, right? They need more so than somebody who's had a very happy, charmed life. They need to have someone next to them. And so that means their relationships are under a greater scrutiny. There's a little bit perhaps more at stake for them, which also I think makes it harder for them to to say who they are. Um, and especially when you consider them, you know, the vast divide between someone who comes from another part of the world and someone who is meeting an American or a non-American, um, just trying to figure out 
can you actually understand me is such a huge and necessary step. And, you know, sometimes even the step that you make as a novelist when you're writing in English and you're writing, you know, for a largely Western audience and you're writing about characters who are African, part of the anxiety is definitely, um, are these lives knowable to the other? You know, how can I actually make these characters um, seem like they are not the other, that they are actually sort of human beings that are share the same traits that you and I would share that are not purely alien um, performers of, of a totally different sphere of life that, that seems unknowable to us. So that anxiety, I think, is also transferred onto my characters when I create them. I, I totally hear that, and I think that's a very good technique. But on the other hand, I could also argue that isn't it the obligation of the novelist to present perhaps a more another that is perceived generally as more abrasive and actually make that person more inviting and that actually sometimes uh, going for the introverted the cro- yeah. approach and the quiet approach, even though I think it's totally laudable in your three books, uh, I mean, what about the, I guess, you know, the, the noisier type yeah. of uh, African immigrant? I mean, they exist too. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah. Um, and and someone else will write those people. Um, <laughs> you know, really? that's, you um, haven't actually tried to write this kind no, of? No, no. I mean, it's also, I think, perhaps, you know, it's, it's also my own aesthetic sensibility. So not only just besides of trying to depict those particular characters, you know, the novels that I'm most drawn to and the prose styles that I'm most drawn to are oftentimes the ones that are the most quiet, um, the ones that are sort of born more deeply out of out of a sense of sort of um, how the characters quietly regard the world around them rather than how they try to shape or manipulate the world around them. I love characters who, who, are, who are observers, who are watchers of the world. Um, sure. And my characters are born out of that as much as they're born out of anything else. And so that aesthetic choice is... Um, probably just an inevitable reflection of, of who you are as an artist. It's hard to imagine. I've never been able to really imagine myself creating very loud, um, sort of big, busy body characters. It's just it's not who I am as a person. It's probably not who I am as an artist either. So you think that you can't really uh, get out of, I guess, the people you know, that there's no way you can, I suppose, inhabit someone who is completely opposite from you in terms of writing a novel or writing fiction? Or Well, I, you know, I mean, Helen is fairly opposite from yeah. me, I would say. And well, I would, that's true. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, also, like, opposite from me, like, you know, I don't have, I don't bear any of the trauma that these men do in any ways at all. You know, the experiences of, you know, I may have traveled through, through conflict zones in Africa, but that's still radically different from the experiences the characters in my book go through. Um, you know, they're also living in Africa in 19. 19- 70 before I was even born, um, the same way Stefanos in the first novel, you know, experiences violence in Ethiopia long before I was ever born. And those are very much my imaginations of what those traumatic figures could have looked like. So, you know, of course, conceivably, I could just invert that and rather than cre- rather than create characters who have experienced violence or trauma that I have in characters who have experienced massive wealth um, and have spent their lives traveling in business class from Nigeria to wherever. Um, those characters very much do exist. Um, they're just not the ones that I find the most compelling. You know, I think I'm 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 compelled by human beings who have um, sort of experienced extreme forms of of political and emotional crisis. You know, I mean, very much. I don't think of my. It's well, it's hard to say that term, political novelist, but. Um, I do think of my characters as also being a reflection of my engagement with a certain type of politics. And it's for me, it's very important to keep that political engagement alive in my work. Huh. So I, I, I'm sorry to be stuck on this because no. I'm really fascinated by this. But uh, do you feel that novelists who, I guess, are, uh, I guess, man of a thousand voices or ventriloquists to some degree, that they're not, they're not necessarily uh, being uh, as artisanal or, or actually they're not being as human in their work? Or, or oh, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I, yeah. You know, I think, thank God, everyone doesn't write the same way I do. Yeah. I would be a very boring body of literature out there in the world. Um, No, I think that's every, you know, the great thing about uh, 
having a wide body of literature in front of you is that you were allowed to experience all these different t- ways of being. You know, and every book allows you to experience another facet of, of, of our collective humanity. And here's one that oftentimes I think doesn't get reported in the same way that you can have novels who are create very exuberant, massive characters. And I love those characters as well. Like, you know, Bellows is one of my greatest influences and many of his characters are, are enormous, huge, larger-than-life figures. Herzog is, um, not Herzog, actually, Augie March, Augie March yeah. is one of the, you Chicago. know. Exactly, one of my favorite characters yeah. as well. Um, and I love those characters and I love to live the world in those characters as well. And, and I also like the characters who, um, who are very much rooted to one small place and never leave home. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you do then to, I mean, obviously Helen is, is definitely a step in this direction yeah. to resist the kind of impulses of the characters who are comfortable for you to write. I mean, what, what do you do beyond Helen or do you, do you see yourself kind of really pushing yourself and, and stretching the spectrum so that you actually do show that you have multiple points in your human yeah. spectrum in fiction. What, what, do you, what do you do to really sort of shake that up? Well, I, th- I think, you know, now what, I'm, what, I work on, what I'm working on now next seems, and it's very early, but it, that already feels very different. It's not, there's no, there's no immigrants as far as I can tell, but um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Whatever I write, someone's going to say it's an immigrant novel anyway, so I can write about, you know, a wasp family in Connecticut, and someone will still say it's amazing how he's managed to reimagine <laughs> the immigrant character as a wasp family in Connecticut. Is this? Um, is this okay? I'm sorry, go ahead. But but you know, but the, all because all three of these novels were were a type of conversation I was having with a set of problems. You know, yeah. the problems of not only migration but of the relationship between the violence on the sort of political scale and how that affects the individual and how those things are carried over into an American landscape and how these landscapes are and politics are sort of you know. Um, joined in the United States in a very particular way, not only in terms of the African experience, but also the racial experiences of being black in America, of being white in America. Um, that That's a conversation that I've been having over those three books, and I've, that conversation feels like it's come to some form of resolution for me. Yeah, yeah, a trilogy. Yeah. Well, I mean, this also brings up a point I wanted to talk about with, in relation to our names, and that is the fact that you've deliberately kept time and space murky for the first time, which is interesting no. in light of the close attention you had in uh, to Logan Circle in the beautiful things that heaven bears. Uh, we, we're given Laurel and Kampala, uh, but more often common nouns, as I said no. earlier, like the capital or the government. Uh, and I detected that it was either the late 1960s or the early 1970s uh, with that diner scene, yeah. uh, because we have these references to segregation only just uh, just recently yeah. abated. Uh, but then we also have the references to San Francisco Hippies, no. the Bob Marley poster. But uh, there was also a part of my mind that because you did that, I, I almost wanted to shift the setting. I wanted it to actually like, oh, well, it could be here, it could be yeah. there. I, I was almost tempted to even look at that diner scene like, well, that could even happen today. Yeah. Uh, and it, it has happened today. Um, so, you know, I, you, you, you brought this acute sense of place to the first book. And in this, I'm wondering about this, was the idea to see what specific emotions you can summon up by being so general this time? Was that, was that the strategy here? I was curious. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I, I, the characters were, I, I had very strong ideas of where these characters were come from. So I did know, you know, that I was thinking very deeply about sort of, about of Uganda. Um, and at the same time, not just Kampala, but again, of course, of what had happened in this particular period of time across multiple countries in Africa at the same time. So um, my initial desire was actually to not name the country at all and yeah. to leave it sort of a very, very big. Editorial yeah. resistance? Or? Um, <laughs> yes, which is which was actually a very, very good call in my editor. Yeah. You know, she said that actually, so you know this is happening in Kampala, so why resist giving that to the reader, right? Um, and in that desire to want to sort of say, well, this is something that's happened across Africa. Obviously, you can say that still within the particularities of one part of one space. But also, once you begin to do that, you know, once you start naming too many things, um, you know, one that fits into the characters who are sort of resisting and, and um, 
denying a sort of solid form of identity because their, their identities are very much in flux or in transit over the course of the novel. Um, and then two, to resist that, the sort of desire to think of these things as historical events that are limited in space and time to one particular thing, right? So that, you know, if I said like, well, right, this would have been after Idi Amin came into power and Milton Abote was about to return to power and that would be the threat that was Uganda was facing at that time, that I had the anxiety that that would freeze it as something that was done and over with to some degree, right? When in fact, these are um, narratives that are continuing to trouble um, Africa and the same forms of the same way that I would argue that discrimination continues to affect American politics and American life, despite the advances made. Um, And, you know, the, that desire to not name like Laurel and say that, yes, in my imagination, I was thinking of a small place along the border of Illinois and and Missouri, um, again, makes me feel like that then, limits or potentially could limit um, the scope of what I, I was hoping for, which is which is not a temporal reality, but very much that emotional specificity that I wanted to be able to, to hold on to. I wanted to talk how politics got into this, because there's the big no-no. Novelists are not supposed to be uh, writing about politics. They're not supposed to be didactic. Does not having that uh, acute specifics or tying in some of the violence to uh, places where, like, you know, you have this house, the furniture is removed, yeah. and then suddenly there's some violence related to that event, and we actually tie it in more to the space than to the actual violence itself. Is Are these little tricks to kind of get around that problem of being, uh, I guess – known as a political yeah. novelist or getting or actually even encouraging whatever potential preachy impulses you may yeah. have I, how, how does this work yeah i mean I, you know i think we have we are particular in the states about having that anxiety over the yeah. political novel and and you know most of this book was written in france and having lived abroad for 5 years one you begin to see that that's not true around the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, that actually the rest of the world sees the intersection of literature and politics very clearly, that politics are not divorced from the sort of day-to-day human experience. What is always going to be bad is didacticism. doesn't matter if it's political or not. In any form of literature, it doesn't, it's no longer literature when you begin to dictate the terms upon which the reader is supposed to encounter the ideas in the, in the story. Um, at the same time, you know, I could say like, my political concerns are very very humanistic in their, in their, at their base. And so um, I feel like very, it's very important to bring those into the text, and I can't not do that. So especially with, you know, the, the facts of discrimination, um, there is a sort of, you know, the other three, there are three love stories in the novel. One of them takes place between two men. Yeah. Um, and that was very much written with the sense that here is we were and still are at a time um, both in Africa and the U.S. Um, where there's a lot of discrimination against homosexuality. And yeah. to me, that seems absolutely vital to want to bring into a story. And to think about that the same way you think about the discrimination that would have happened between an interracial couple. You know, we would we understand that now to be intolerable, and we should be able to understand the other one as being intolerable too. I'm absolutely with you on the idea that politics in fiction is like any topic – so provided you have some sort of humanistic no. thrust, then you can pretty much write about it. But this does lead me to ask, I mean, what constraints do you, have you identified that uh, others are perhaps putting on American fiction? Why do you think that our novels are not as political as, say, European novels or even you know, novels from Asia or Africa? I, I think it's because we, have, we, we, we tend to think that it undermines the aesthetic value of the product, and that is our primary concern. And we do – and it's also, I think, why American literature is, is, is so, so vital around the world and why our novels are sort of travel very, very well because we place the aesthetics at the forefront. It's just sometimes we don't, we see the aesthetics as being in opposition to the political. Um, when in fact, if anything, I think the more 
attention you pay to the aesthetics of a novel, the more you're allowed to write politically. Um, that, in fact, it's actually the aesthetics that grant you that space for politics because the novel has um, sort of created that space of, of, of art um, in order and that within that space of art, there's a lot more room to, to engage because you know that you're not going to fall into that trap of didacticism. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've used the phrase aesthetic value several times. I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more. What do you mean by aesthetic value? What is your idea of aesthetic value? What is the aesthetic value that you think fiction should offer? Um, you know, I think of I think of the aesthetics as as the argument a book makes for its way of seeing. Um, that every every work of art is is to some degree trying to make an argument for for a way of looking at the world. And um, and the characters in my novel are very much um, you know sort of these characters who are are flawed, morally complex. Um, at the same time, are very much. Um, desperate and hoping to find love in their lives. And that is the sort of aesthetic argument that the book is making for me. You know, it's one way of, of and aesthetics and, and ethics and politics for me, they all sort of intertwine um, on, in that way, I don't think. And then there's, you know, that happens very much on the sentence level. So how you create your sentences, the care with which you write them, those are, those are functions of aesthetics. Um, but that is all within the framework of this argument that I think I'm trying to make when I write. So ultimately, the aesthetic value is the relationship between humanism and what is how it is expressed in the sentence. Yeah, yeah that's okay. okay. Oh, I want to actually also talk about something that's very curious about the three men in your three books. Uh, they have this curious materialistic relationship. It's really interesting. Uh, they are defined very much by their items rather than than their emotions. Uh, and, and this, I suppose, ties in mm. to some degree with the aesthetic value idea. Uh, they live in apartments in which the furniture is either a hand-me-down from someone else, I think of Sefa, or it's simply non-existence, the items that uh, Jonas contains in his suitcase near the end of uh, All Our Names. Uh, yet they are also fond of giving gifts. I mean, that very tragic moment where Sefa is blowing his money on the expensive Emily no. Dickinson book. Uh, and then you have Isaac, of course, sending Helen this collection of landmarks that he wants to go to. Um, and, and this is very interesting that they use materials and uh, gifts to express their connection no. to other people. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, why, why, do you, why do you think materials uh, cause them to reveal their feelings more than their actual feelings? No. Well, it's, 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 the, it's the gesture that, yeah. you know, that's so important to them, right? Because in a lot of times... Um, What's the greatest anxiety for these men is actually naming what has happened to them, both to somebody else um, who they may be falling in love with and also very much to themselves as well. You know, these characters are all struggling to discover themselves to some degree. If there is an emotional evolution in all three novels, it is that evolution of a character who is um, to some degree in some form of denial over who they are and what they've become. And the novels have tended to be um, a sort of process of discovery for those men. You know, they slowly work their way to understanding this is what has made them who they are. These are the events. These are the actions that they've taken or haven't taken that have caused them to be these sort of damaged men. You know, in some cases like um, Sefa in the first novel, it's both the death of his father and then to his resistance to actually embracing his own life in the U.S. And in this particular novel, it's the character's understanding that I've come to America and that has meant somebody else's sacrifice and, uh, enormously in order for me to do so. And I don't know how to share that with someone. I don't know how to tell that to this woman that I do love and, and have grown to really care about. What ways do I have of communicating this sort of seemingly um, impossible narrative? I don't know. So instead, I offer you this um, very small items. You know, like there's the Emily Dickinson book. There's these little plastic trinkets of monuments across America. And within each of those, there's this sort of idea that I can 
um, we can try to share this text together. You know, we can share these poems together, or perhaps we can share this journey across this imaginary American landscape someday together. But there's also the box metaphor that's in the second book as well, where you're constantly being boxed in. I mean, all of these characters seem to only perceive, I mean, they want to make these emotions material in some sense. They want to make them physical, and that's the, the only way they can really do it is through a gesture as opposed through, you know, something that is really feeling inside yeah. them. I, that's that's really yeah. curious. Um, but also, you know, if the characters just came out and were like, all right, I love you. I, this is what happened to <laughs> you me. Want, you, it you wouldn't have the conflict. Oh, I yeah, see. I it wouldn't see. be much of a story. It would, yeah. it would end pretty quickly, right? Well, not necessarily because <laughs> so you can say I love you and then the person can respond, I don't, I don't. love you. <laughs> yes. And then, then you have conflict. No. But I guess it's your way, I suppose, of holding on to emotion. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is your way to go ahead and imbue emotion and put it into objects. This is your way of sustaining something as long as possible, <laughs> <laughs> would you say? Yeah, I think that yeah. definitely works. Yeah. I mean, I, nothing wrong with yeah, it. Yeah. I think it's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, you know, for me, it's also, I, I because I, I'm so curious about what it takes for these characters in order to have that. There's kind of an epiphanal moment for all these characters when yeah. they actually are able to release some of themselves to the person. You know, they do eventually come out of their boxes, yeah. hopefully by the time the novels are over. Um, and so for me, it is a process of, like, that process of reading a novel, writing the novel, is very much about peeling back all the layers of, of their of their artifice and figuring out how they're going to actually emerge out of that, you know? And so until they do so, they are, they are holding onto these objects. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I want to go more into the balance between the personal and the political. Normally, we, we keep the map of someone who we love uh, inside our head. I mean, you know, and, and in this case, you have on the, in the political chapters a situation where uh, not Isaac has this map inside of his head where he ha- that's how he actually knows the physical terrain that he has to navigate. And I find that to be really interesting because you're inverting the personal and the political with the expectations like this. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how, how did something like this develop? Was, was this kind of the idea of, of taking feelings that we normally associate with the personal and the political and seeing how they work in, in the other realm? Uh, was this one of the draws for for this particular project, or the the, the mapping that Isaac makes when he ha- is going through this through? Well, because what I what I what I mean to say, and maybe I didn't express no. myself terribly well, but uh, you know, usually if we love someone, we have such an uh, an, an internal map, or at least this is what I feel. Yeah. We have an internal map of them, so we know all of all the person we love. We know every single little thing about them, and so we can actually navigate. I think in that map, and I associate that feeling more with the personal than the political. No. But in this, um, the political is. Very very much uh, something that is concrete. We yeah. go to rallies, we carry signs in the streets, right? Uh, and and in this, it's very much internal. So I'm wondering, yeah. you know, this tension between uh, what the personal can do for the for the political. How, how much was yeah. this uh, a, a kind of operating factor in terms of uh, this particular project? Um, you know, I mean, I've, I, I, for me, I tend to think that like, the, the great mystery in all these people are are actually with the people that they love, right? Like yeah. they're um, the greatest sort of silences in the novel, the greatest sort of mystery is is knowing the other person's heart and what's sort of behind it. Um, you know, and that happens across all the characters. So, you know, the two the two Isaacs, the not Isaac and the Isaac, they are sort of deep, deep, they, they form a profound friendship or a very close friendship. And yet what's not known between the moments until the very end is actually what's in both of their hearts. You know, like who do each of them, they both love each other as friends, but there's a sort of great anxiety over like, well, who's actually this person's real lover in his life in the same way that um, Isaac and Helen 
really love each other, but yet at the same time, neither one of them knows exactly what lies at the core of that other person's existence. Um, and very much so, that does come back to the very political realities that have created all of these characters. So not understanding Isaac, not being able to express his emotions, his sexuality, to some degree, is very closely tied into the sort of violence and politics that surround him. Um, Helen and Isaac not being, the not Isaac in America, and Helen not being able to talk about um, all the things that are separating them, not only Isaac's history in Africa, but the fact that like this interracial relationship is impossible to live, it's impossible for that to live publicly at this particular time in America's history. And so they are unknown to each other very much that way because they are never allowed to step outside of this, uh, from from beyond, from behind the, their, their doors. You know, they can't actually go outside publicly as a real couple except to perform small gestures like house, like shopping. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, is the personal... I suppose heightened or even uh, is, is it is it thrown into a, a new original trajectory if we were to look at the personal entirely from the political and vice versa. I mean, I, I, that's kind of what I was yeah. trying to get at here. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I totally understand that because yeah. um, I mean I, I I don't I guess I perhaps I don't separate them at, at all. You know, yeah. to some degree, like I kind of I think. You know, for me, the characters' personal lives are very much the distillation of their political lives. And so there's no um, distinction in many ways for, for me between how I think of them um, as in their personal spheres or in their political ones. I don't, I, they're very much collapsed, I think. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So uh, Helen's relationship to her parents is, is extremely interesting. I mean, her, her mother is this very uh, visible yet lonely figure who doesn't want to – she just really doesn't want to become no. that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, she also wants to connect with the, fami- the familiarity of this diner, which her father inhabited. Uh, in both cases, there's this really interesting rigidity of place. Uh, when Helen tries to create a place for Isaac here, however, I mean, she returns the next night after dinner to find not a lot more than leftover chicken in the fridge. It, it's almost that it's it's absolutely fixed like this. Uh, Helen, of course, is about 25. Um, and I'm wondering if this is your funny way of suggesting that, uh, well, setting up physical space uh, through relationships requires age and experience, or, or is there something uh, broader that you're trying to consider in terms of uh, uh, the, the space we set for ourselves, both in the personal yeah. uh, and, and the um, and the political? Yeah. Well, you know, I think very much the, um, the space that Isaac and I, the, the space that Helen is able to have in this relationship with, with, with this um Isaac character is very much complicated by um, where it can actually sort of happen, right? They, their relationship is sort of moved from place to place. You know, Helen tries to map out the, all the spaces where their relationship can happen publicly. You know, she's like, well, when we go to the post office, there is a space that we're almost able to succeed as a couple but actually fail. When we go grocery shopping together, I can count that as a success because we are out in this public space together and we're able to do this ritual that all couples all are able to do, um, even though, of course, no one knows we're a couple and we can't ever actually publicly be a couple and then there's the space that they have when they're behind doors you know when they're actually in Isaac's apartment um where they actually can be an intimate and where they actually can be you know very much a couple but even within that space um there's there's a sort of danger and there's a risk because she knows that this is Isaac's space but yet it's completely vacant um and she worries that in that vacancy there's also a reflection of Isaac's vacancy that he is not really there that he will get up one day and disappear just as easily as the chicken in that refrigerator that all there are are these sort of leftover bits of a man um and so that anxiety is very much materializes in these spaces the spaces are are very central to how their relationship is performed lived and experienced mm-hmm. so there's also this uh, silence that uh, Helen and Isaac have with each other that's similar to the silence between uh, Jonas and Angela in How to Read the Air. Words seem to be less valuable in accounting for a relationship 
oddly enough, in a medium that is designed to house yeah. words. So uh, do you think that the unsaid reveals more about a relationship in a novel? And why or why not? Yeah. Um, you know, I, t- I tend to think that rela- – maybe these are just sort of a reflection of the relationships I've had. Um, <laughs> but, that, you know, so much of, of a relationship is, is – is spent trying to figure out how to say something to one another, right? And so you do live very much in... And when a relationship is also going very well, you learn to actually understand your silences sometimes more than you do anything else in your relationships. It's the silences that actually sort of provoke you to use language sometimes because the silence has become unbearable because so much is actually being said. That language actually becomes a release from the the sort of anxiety and almost the violence that silence can inhabit in the same way that words don't because words actually give names to the problems that you are facing or suffering um, um, the silence is um, they're the sort of ineffable pain that we don't actually know how to communicate. And so um, these characters are, um, you know, they, for by and large, they inhabit that um, that sort of pain silence. You know, they're novel, the novel or is sort of trying to get them to that point where they can actually use language to actually break out of that. Yeah. But what's also interesting is that by inhabiting silence, especially in How to Read the Air, uh, they end up having to measure it. They have to measure the amount of words that they say. They have to measure the amount of time that they pass. And it's almost as if like you're you're going to have an inevitable ruler that you're going to apply to a relationship. And this might actually get in the way of that kind of organic uh, love that is supposed to grow. And and I'm wondering, you know, uh, I'm I'm wondering if this is something you may actually even explore in in a future uh, fiction project or or whatnot. And and what what, what that dilemma does in terms of thinking about the way we relate to other people especially the people who we love. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and How to Read the Air for me, the silence was very much, like you said, some a very physical thing. You know, yeah. it was something that the characters are, if they could measure it, they very much would. So, you know, they believe, or um, because I think they are so anxious and, and have so many problems with, with how they communicate to themselves, um, because they, they worry that communication will sort of lead to to more damage, right? So if you actually say these things, that will actually sort of precipitate someone's frustration, someone's violent reaction. And so in order to avoid that, you you inhabit the silences that surround it. And that at the same time, those silences become spaces. You know, they become very tangible, physical things that are, um, they are not the real violence because they don't actually materialize into a sort of, you know, someone hitting you or yelling at you. Um, and yet at the same time, the characters are forced to live inside of them, you know, the same way that they live inside a physical box. To yeah. some degree, they actually are for us to inhabit this um, sort of nebulous, nefarious space. Yeah. I have to bring up the rather mysterious character David in all our names. I mean, he's this co-worker. He follows Helen around. Uh, and, you know, there are also these increasing guards that yeah. are looking after not Isaac in the Isaac chapters. So it's almost like there is almost a kind of proto-surveillance state in <laughs> place. And I was wondering if, if any of the, uh, you know, recent allegations of the last uh, everything from Fisa to Snowden, I mean, Snowden obviously came much later, but uh, if, if any of this was weighing on your mind, that uh, that one cannot examine the political, personal nexus without considering how one is watched. Yeah. Um, and no, because most of this I was actually would have was done before um, that – are we realized that we were basically being watched all the time, even though we probably suspected that. Um, and, and David's character, he is very much um, watching over Helen. But for me, the, he, he is a much more um, compassionate character. Like his watching over Helen is partly because he... It's a good he, kind of watcher. It's a good kind of watcher, but it's also... But it's very... It's, he needs... To, he wants to see her in this relationship and he needs um, he's fascinated by that possibility because he's not capable of having the type of relationship that he wants in his own life so he's hoping to see Helen um, 
take those risks that he himself cannot. Um, and so the, it's also because he cares about Helen, loves Helen, but there is very much like, wow, if someone um, can actually do that, if this woman can go off and have a relationship with this African man, then there's all sorts of other things that are perhaps possible in this world. There are possible ways of actually finding love and, and being able to actually experience it um, despite knowing that everything around you says this is not the type of love that you should have. I guess you needed to have the American constant in this grand equation yeah. of multiculturalism and all that. I have a kind of weird question, and it was only because I read the Michiko Kakatani review, where she compared all our names to Brideshead Revisited, but I actually thought it was the wrong Evelyn Waugh book. I was thinking it was more a handful of dust, especially with that last chapter, The Man Who, <laughs> than like Dickens, you know, and Dickens, of course, plays a, plays a big role in this. It's almost that this book was is kind of, if you wanted to go ahead and play the Waugh card, a handful of dust in reverse with uh, <laughs> Uganda filling in for Brazil. But, um, you know, we had mentioned V.S. Nepal earlier no. in the, at the very head of this conversation, and uh, you've very been, you've been very keen on Rilke <laughs> throughout yeah. all of these books. Uh, this leads me to ask, I mean, you know, what of colonial literature? What do we do these days? Is there anything we can take from Conrad, Waugh, Kipling, all those guys that would be of value today? Or is this just simply passe? Or, or do we need to kind of confront some of those really ugly brazen perspectives to, to make sense of, of how the world is as it is no. today. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you look to those guys at all? Or? Um, you know, actually, actually the, um, the, I haven't actually read the Wild Book Handful script that you were referencing. Oh, um, it's great. <laughs> um, but Brideshead Revisited is, is one of my favorite novels, and it is a novel that, um, that I've um, that I've re- read and reread, and that um, I deeply, deeply admire, and made a, a very large. Because I actually read it fairly late. I read it um, in my late twenties, actually. So I didn't actually. I never read it in college. So I read it at a stage when I was actively trying to write. Um, so I definitely. Um, I don't know if I could consciously say that I was thinking of Wa while writing this book, but I do know and love that book. Um, and definitely, you know, Naipaul's A Bend in the River is always sort of lurking in the background of my mind to some degree, um, both as something that I admire and something that I'm working against in many ways sometimes, yeah. you know, and so like Naipaul doesn't name his town in a bend in the river, you know, he doesn't name, uh, you can sort of imagine that and, and well, it's, it's explicitly con- referenced in the first book too, yeah. like, you know, cause he's a sh- shopkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, 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 I love Conrad. I think I, I don't, there are some texts that are perhaps more problematic. Um, but for me, you know, those problems aren't based on the fact that these characters, that these writers created very sometimes flawed perspectives. Those flaws are sometimes the perspectives of the characters in the text, whether the authors may have had their own racial prejudices or not to me is irrelevant. Um, I think I don't. I think Conrad's Heart of Darkness is strives very hard actually to work against those colonial, um, or that strives very hard to show how disastrous colonial of an enterprise actually is. I don't think it's um, doing anything but that. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a very sort of moral human concern at that heart of that book that's quite beautiful. But I'm wondering if there's anything about the great game that we can even, you know, is, is it even something that should be played out in fiction today? By, by, I'm sorry, what do you like, mean? Like, like the yeah. great game that's in Lord Jim and yeah. all that, you know, I mean, that kind of uh, level of, uh, of kind of troubling colonialism yeah. and, and uh, complicit imperialism. I mean... I, I don't know. I, it, it may very well be just sort of an issue that probably shouldn't be dragged up, but I was curious no. to hear your thoughts on this. I, uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I have no problems with, with having those that conversation still ongoing. You know, and, um, if there was one book that I would say was the most vital to writing this one, it was um, Tayyip Salah's Season of Migration to the North. And that book is very much rooted in the sort of effects of post-colonialism and is very much... Um, you know, uh, some I know there's a sort of idea that he's also very much mocking um, Conrad at the same time of that, but that this book is very much um, 
indebted to all the problems that happened with colonialism, right? And that the colonialism actually does not end. It doesn't, you sort of look at Ngugi Waithiango's argument, there is no post-colonial era. It's just all neocolonialism and that we are never out of that phase. I think that's a pretty true and valid statement, actually, in many ways. If you're, I mean, depends on, you know, Africa's a very large place, so you can't apply that throughout the whole continent. But definitely if you're talking about like this novel, you know, sort of Uganda um, and sort of Central Eastern Africa, I think the colonial legacy is very, very much present, you know, and that it's not very, it's not, that conversation is very far from finished. You can't, any more than like we would stop talking about the civil rights movement. Like that's not, that that period isn't over in our imagination either. We're talking about 1962. We're only 45 years out of, or I guess 50 years out now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I know. I, I always mess up the yeah. math myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I also wanted to talk about the prose. Uh, you had, we were talking about fiction and journalism, that tension earlier. But uh, I, I want to actually uh, ask you about how you get that kind of balance in the sentence and that balance in the aesthetic value. Uh, there's always seems to be, in many cases, the right amount of nouns and adjectives in a sentence. I'll, I'll offer one example from this book. Loud voices and strong smells rose from every corner. Uh, that seems typical, no. but every single word except for the last two is containing only one syllable. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what, how much of this rhythm comes sort of innately? Is, are you more of a sort of slow writer or do you have to kind of uh, be more lapidary over the course of time to get that kind of rhythm? I'm curious how you find that. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty slow writer. Um, you know, every once in a while, like, you know, I, I will have um, – Sometimes a very strong burst where maybe I'll be able to get a, a paragraph out fairly quickly. And that's because there's a kind of rhythm in my head that starts working really quickly. But most of the time, um, I'm I'm very much thinking in in a rhythmic pattern in my mind. I mean, there's a lot of like a, for a long time when I would find myself stuck writing my automatic response would be just to start reading poetry, or I used to memorize a lot of poetry, and that would oftentimes. Um, give me that sort of tactile sense of language of the way the sort of like words sound and the way they kind of feel in your head or in your mouth when you sort of speak them. And then that would get me back, you know, that would sort of get me back into the sentences and let me want to keep writing. Um, but then you're always, you know, you always have this sense in between, um, between how much of the emphasis you want to sort of focus on language and of course what the characters need like the characters do have also the storyline needs to move forward and um, if I was spending all my time thinking about like how to make every sentence lyrical or perfect or precise then I probably wouldn't be able to get my characters out of the door um, or I wouldn't sometimes even want them out of the door I would just want to sort of keep writing them until they felt very pretty to me sentences serve almost as the same kind of tension as we were talking about earlier how you want to sustain an emotion through a material object a sentence is kind of almost its own material object as well to sustain an emotion yeah definitely yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually a very nice thought to end yeah. this conversation on Dino this was an absolute pleasure thank you so much for thank you very much Ed. thank fantastic. you fantastic